0: You're listening to all the best. I'm Maddie McQueen. This week, we have stories about pursuits of passion that might seem futile, like Sisyphus pushing a boulder up a hill, or me blindly believing that this time, on my fifth reading, Marie Kondo's life changing magic of tidying up will actually work and I'll suddenly be a minimalist. These stories, however, are not about pushing boulders or breaking unbreakable habits. They may have lost a few battles, but the people in our stories today are sure of it. They will win the war. In our first story, Joel, Erin and Jay love wrestling, but they've noticed some parts of the industry that they're not so keen on. They decided to start their own company to make a change in the sport they love. And despite the barbed wire and broken glass, Deathmatch Down Under might just be the safest space in the wrestling world.
1: Okay, so this story starts in a hotel basement right in the middle of Melbourne, where an independent pro wrestling promotion called Deathmatch Down Under is kicking off its first ever show with something that is a little bit new to the community.
2: We'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Sovereignty has never been ceded. The land is, and always will be, Aboriginal land.
1: So, as the night starts to kick off in full, it becomes clear that this isn't just any pro wrestling promotion, it's probably one of the most progressive ones you're ever going to see. On the way in, there is a poster that features the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island flags and a written acknowledgement of country underneath them. Inside there are signs taped to pretty much every wall with a phone number for you to report any dickheads that might be making you or your friends feel uncomfortable. If you look around, there's a lot of green and blue and purple hair, but also a lot of shaved and balding heads and a lot of people of different backgrounds. It's just a room full of people who look like they would never have come together for any reason other than this one weird thing that you never knew they had in common. Wrestling. So by the time Richie Smash Mouth Taylor comes out and gives you a high five at the front barricades because you, like me, are cool enough to run up there and get one, you can feel two things. The first is the explosive energy in this room. Everyone here is still pretty fresh out of the nine-month COVID lockdown we had here in Melbourne, and everyone's ready for a big night. But the second thing you feel is that despite that energy, this is still a safe place, not just for the performers, but also for the crowd. It's a place where you don't need to worry about things getting out of hand, people going too far, and a place where you can feel, and look, and act, however you want. Unless, of course, you are the wrestler playing the bad guy, but in that case, it's just your job to get booed, so... Before this match gets underway, I want to remind us that wrestling is storytelling. And as the match gets underway, you can immediately tell the story being told. You can be like me and actually know nothing about Richie Taylor or Tommy Knight, but still see what's going on, because they're telling a story as old as storytelling itself. It's the big man versus the little man, the underdog, the David versus Goliath, or the Oberyn versus the Mountain, but hopefully no one's head will explode. The match keeps going on, and you can start to see how that story's being constructed. Because every time Richie builds up head of steam, every time he winds up for a big move, every time the crowd gets behind him, and you start to think, maybe he can overcome this 40 kilo difference between him and Tommy. He gets dropped. He gets body slammed. He gets thrown out of the ring like he's just a red-haired, red-bearded ragdoll. And as the match reaches the climax, Tommy wants to fit into shop so he introduces a weapon. Brain the Brain Buster is a move where you pick your opponents up, hang them vertically in the air, and then aim to drop them on their head. I say aim to because in this case, it doesn't happen. Richie actually makes a reversal, gets on his feet, puts some chops in, so hard that he puts Tommy down, and Almost picks up the win. But from then on, it's like Chekhov's gone. The bad guys introduced a weapon, it only makes sense for the good guy to walk around and pick it up. Use it on Tommy. And for good to prevail. So again, Wrestling is storytelling, and it's the kind of storytelling that's best when reality blends into the work, when you know about the people behind the characters and care about them so much that you can suspend your disbelief, and then, suddenly, what's happening in the ring takes on an entirely new meaning. There's one match in the middle of the card tonight that tells the story of Deathmatch Down Under, of how it got here and why it's working so hard to be safe. It's a match for the Total Violence Championship and it's a story of the challenger, about what wrestling has always been for him and what it's never been able to be, at least until now, because of the racism that this country holds so deeply.
2: So my name is Joel William Bateman, I'm from the Watjibala tribe uh, here in Melbourne, Uh, a little bit north of Melbourne if we're being honest, and today I am one of a team of organisers for Deathmatch Down Under. Joel said he's only
1: been introducing himself by his Indigenous tribe in the last six months. That's huge because he's been a wrestler for about 18 years and wrestling's been a part of his life for even longer than that, from when he was a kid with a pretty peculiar sense of style.
2: I had a rat's tail. Um, and It was awful. I had a shaved it and a rat's tail down in <laughs> my bum. My mum <laughs> thought it was cool. I look at the photos now and cringe. That rat-tailed kid spent a lot of time with his uncle. He was one of the only people I knew back in the mid-90s that had cable TV. And so they watched wrestling together. And I remember sitting on his waterbed in his bedroom watching that, it's the coolest thing in the world. And because he was a kid watching something on
1: TV that he liked, he just tried to do it, which ended about as well as you'd expect.
2: Lots of wrestling on the playground, lots of getting in trouble from teachers because you're trying to powerbomb another seven-year-old and you have no idea what you're doing. And ended up culminating in my mom trying to push me into lots of different sports to try and get wrestling out of me. You'll pick something else up because apparently as a kid, I was a very gifted football player, played footy, didn't really like it in a team sport, played cricket, didn't work, chess, badminton, you name it. Mum tried to push me into it to get wrestling out of it. And then in 2001, we saw an ad in the paper for a local wrestling school um, and mum said, cool, I'm going to take you to practice, you're going to get your ass kicked, you're never going to want to do it again. And we finally stopped hearing about the in wrestling. My mom took me to practice and I got my ass kicked and I went, this is the coolest thing in the world.
1: <laughs> From then on, the development of Joel Bateman, the kid, to the teenager, to the adult, was part and parcel with the development of Joel Bateman, the character. How he looked, how he spoke and how he acted.
2: I was a nerdy kid with no confidence, no sense of dress, no social cues. Growing up in wrestling and kind of learning social cues through performance Mm. and watching what gets a positive reaction and what gets a negative reaction and things like that definitely helped me develop as a teenager and into a person and then now going back the other way where my character is an extension of myself I know what traits to think of it like a soundboard I know what traits to push up what traits to pull back
1: and by giving him an understanding of himself as a character and giving him control of that soundboard, wrestling has helped Joel well outside the ring and well into his adulthood.
2: And things like job interviews and, and, you know, public speaking and stuff like that to the point where, you know, I left school really, really young to try and pursue my dream of being a professional wrestler in Australia, like an idiot. Um, but I'm now, I now work, you know, my nine to five, I work for a local government job without a year 11 pass because of my ability to communicate, and my ability to communicate has come from wrestling.
1: After hearing all this, you could, on the surface, think that wrestling gave Joel everything, which would seem too good to be true,
2: and that would be because it was. One of the questions that you always get asked, you know, is like an introductory thing, and especially in the southeast of Melbourne in the early 2000s, is where are you from? What nationality are you? And say Aboriginal, like I'm Koori. That was... What I was, my mom taught me to answer as long as I could talk. He's, I'm a curry, I'm Aboriginal, I'm Indigenous. But you're white. Fuck. You know, and they go, it's your nose, and they'd use a pretty awful racial slur, um, and go, you've got a blank nose. Thanks. Twelve years old.
1: From the start then, it was clear to Joel that on the soundboard of his personality, where he could develop alongside his characters, his ethnicity and his culture were dials that he just didn't feel safe to touch, and he was reminded of that everywhere.
2: Other performers who, you know, I guess represent their aboriginality a little bit more prominently in their characters, Erica Reed, and Michelle Hasluck, awful racial slurs. Mm. Like, all the worst ones you can think of, a lot for 20 minutes a night just trying to play a character
1: bad guys or villains in wrestling are called heels and when you're playing in a heel you want to be booed but you want to be booed for the right reason those reasons might be betraying your best friend or hitting someone in the nuts when the ref isn't looking those are all part of wrestling canon being booed because of the color of your skin or the flag on your tights shouldn't be but it was And that meant Joel kept that flag off his tights and lent into his ability to pass as something other
2: than his whole self. Going back to the soundboard analogy, knowing what to push up and knowing what to pull back, I had to drop the Aboriginality channel down to zero for almost 18 years. So everything else is... Everything else is up to 11, but yeah, it's like attitude, you know, the way I walk, the way I structure my sentences my athletic ability all the way up to 11 I'm going to do as much as I can when it comes to my ethnicity down nothing i'm another white guy mm. it's it it's disingenuous
1: mm.
2: my character playing myself was disingenuous mm. because and i've got to pull back on you know a key part of my life and something i'm incredibly proud of
1: in the mid 2000s wwe tv was dominated by a group called evolution
2: you see this industry, just like in life,
1: everything evolves. And what you see in this ring before you
2: is the greatest example of evolution you will ever see.
1: They were made of two of the biggest stars of all time, Ric Flair and Triple H, mentoring the next two biggest stars of the company, Batista and Randy Orton. Evolution were everywhere. They were the biggest thing around, and they were the context for what Joel describes as the lowest moment in his career.
2: There's a photo online and I'll find it for you. And we're all smiling in it, but it's myself, a wrestler named Ace Wilson from Adelaide and Michelle Hasluck from Perth. And we're wrestling on an event in Adelaide and the photo is captioned, Abolution. At the same time, evolution was a thing. Right. The joke was made at us and we're all friends and we're smiling in the photo, but the joke was made at us. And that was at a time where, you know, I was relatively successful as a wrestler. Michelle was. Ace was the champion, I think, at the time. Mm. We're all, I, I remember that photo. We're all smiling. And then we all kind of went, that's fucked up. <laughs> like, and just going, okay, cool. Our finesse is a parody of something in the WWE. Awesome.
1: If that moment... Joel standing with his friends near the peak of their careers, succeeding despite the discrimination they had faced, only to have it photographed and captioned with a racial slur embedded in a pun of something from TV. If that was the lowest point in Joel's career, I asked him when things started to change. He told me a personal turning point were his kids, who are 10 and 12 years old now. When they first got old enough to watch him wrestle, They would also see other Indigenous wrestlers, like Ace Wilson, and then they'd look at their dad, and then they would ask Joel. Why does he say he's Aboriginal and you don't? It's a good question. So Joel started looking and hoping for ways he could engage the wrestling community with the racism he had experienced throughout his career. But he never felt supported, never felt like there was any momentum behind him. That was... We
0: are meant to be the lucky
2: country.
1: Until May 2020. Lucky, up? We'll when video footage of the murder of George Floyd energized a new wave of Black Lives Matter rallies around the world. That movement reached the Australian wrestling community, and soon, Joel was invited to guest host a wrestling podcast called On The Turnbuckle, with other wrestlers who had experienced the industry just like
2: him. They
1: did it together, and it took off. That
2: podcast went crazy. Like, it kicked off so many discussions. I got messages from people I hadn't spoken to in 15 years going, I cried listening to that podcast because there was a lot of heavy shit. Like, everyone who recorded the podcast cried while we did it. You know, at the time, Erica Reed. you know, five or six years in, David Storm, who's a Singapore Australian, um, 20 years in, Michelle, 20 years in, all just kind of opening a book and going, this is fucked up, but... All right, and then coming together in a recorded open forum to go, what can we do about this? Like, what can we do to move forward? What can we do to set things up for the next generation? Because we're all not going to be wrestling till we're 50. Michelle since retired. Um, Dave's been trying to retire for a decade. And realistically, I don't have that much long left either, but what can we do to start setting up things for the next generation? So there's the talent that are coming through that are 17, 18, 19, don't have to deal with this shit for the next 20 years.
1: Deathmatch Danundo was supposed to start in that same month of May, and if it did, some of those ambitions might have come true. They didn't because of COVID, and because of the lockdowns the country went into. But even though COVID put a stop to those events, it couldn't stop the progress they were working towards, because it was here, in this space of socially distanced reflection in the midst of a global reckoning that another social movement joined forces with these anti-racist dreams.
0: My name is Erin, here at Deathmatch Down Under. I'm the head of community engagement. Outside of this, I work in community radio. Um, I'm an audio producer and a writer and a storyteller. And you might be known
1: to people listening to all the best. Maybe. Erin and I spoke in the parking lot while everything was being set up, so pardon the garage door in the background.
0: Well, I came on board with the DMDU team probably around July last year so 2020 um, and I came in right after what we would call the speaking out movement so it was very similar to the me too movement Uh, there was this large outcry on uh, social media of people coming forward with stories of abuse and sexual assault Um, and I think for me that was my call to action
1: One of those actions was helping put together a code of conduct that you can find on the DMDU website right now and that you need to accept when you buy a ticket to their shows. It's the kind of document you would want to see in every bar, restaurant, club, gym, or workplace that you ever walk into. It's still a work in progress, but it's closer to the mark than anything I've seen because of how clearly it tells you, the reader and soon-to-be audience, what is expected of you when you enter this space." But even with all this momentum, it was still clear for Joel that the battle for safety in wrestling was still an uphill battle.
2: So we talked about having an acknowledgement of country uh, at an event that got cancelled due to the pandemic. I sent a message to a promoter going, hey, it'd mean the world if you do an acknowledgement of country. Um, Before the show in a couple of weeks, uh, I'm headlining as a bad guy, but, you know, this would be the right thing to do. And the response was, can we turn it into an angle? and wrestling speakers, like, can we make a storyline out of this? Can, I said, "Uh, what do you mean? And his idea was we, so myself and an elder, interrupt the national anthem and demand an acknowledgement of country as a bad guy. This is six months ago. I was standing at the front of a ramen place on Exhibition Street after the Black Lives Matter rally, wearing my always was, always will be vest, texting the promoter.
1: Six months to January 2021 is a long time and riding up this hill in the excitement of Melbourne's great reopening, we find ourselves back here at DMDU's debut show, Outcome the Wolves.
2: It's it's very much the chance for me to finally let out that breath I've been holding in for so long and back to the soundboard analogy, I get to turn that one up for a change. This match
1: is happening in the middle of the card just before the intermission, but for me it's the main event of the night. And when Joel's music hits, I don't think I'm alone in that. Joel walks down to the ring wearing a mask inspired by the rainbow serpent, with the aboriginal flag on his tights and his knee pads, and a gown with Black Lives Matter written down the front of it. The match is full of back and forths, and the crux moment revolves around a board lined with cut cans and gusseted blades, which Joel eventually gets body slammed onto. Which leads to him getting pinned, losing the match, and what to me feels like a real moment of shock amongst the crowd. It feels to me like, quite genuinely, this loss was unexpected, and if it was expected by some of the audience, it still hurts. The two wrestlers eye each other down from opposite sides of the ring, covered in a mixture of their own and each other's blood, and there's this look of respect between them. And then Joel grabs the mic. You can almost miss what Joel does here. He manages to have his moment.
2: I've been wrestling for 18 years. And thanks to the support of a hell of a lot of people in this room, the guys on the turnbuckle, and sorry, for my amazing fucking wife on commentary. This is the first time in 18 years that I have been able to wear this flag.
1: And then almost immediately after that, he just moves on. Now, to business, Charlie
2: Evans! February <laughs> 13, you want a fucking deathmatch? I don't care if we have to bring you in in a suitcase! Get over that fucking border and meet me in this ring.
1: He lets everybody know that what was once impossible for him has now become possible. And then he moves on. And by moving on, he makes it normal. The way he lifts the floor to me—that's progress.
0: That story was produced by Eugene Yang. Lee Robinson was the supervising producer. If you're in Melbourne and keen to see some wrestling, you can find out more at Deathmatch Down Under. .com.au You're listening to All the Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. At All the Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. We all love an underdog story, but it takes tenacity to back a losing team year after year. In this story, Luke introduces us to the grueling world of an Arsenal fan.
3: Let me get you into my shoes for a few moments. Alright, are they comfy? Not too loose around the ankles? Brilliant. So I'm Luke, and I really love Arsenal Football Club. For those who prefer it, soccer is the sport that we're talking about here. My club hasn't quite been at the elite level that it once was. 18 years ago, we won one of the most elite league competitions in the world, and stayed undefeated for the whole season at the same time. We're still the only team to have ever done so, and that squad is still referred to as the Invincible. But since then, we've had a pretty steady and consistent decline. I'll admit, it makes it harder to stick around and support the club with the same passion and love each year that we fall further and further down the order. So why do I stick by them? Well, we'll get to that. For just over four years now, we've been playing in the Europa League, which is essentially a B-grade level of European football. In the English Premier League, which is the domestic competition where we face other teams from England, we've been struggling to finish higher than fifth place which means we don't qualify for the UEFA Champions League. The Champions League is the competition that every football club around the world really wants to be in. Qualifying for the Champions League means that your club has more money to spend on acquiring better players. Your club is also more attractive to these higher profile players. This translates to bigger sponsorships, which means more money, which means even better players, and the cycle repeats, getting exponentially better each time. Ultimately, if you want to be the best and you want to win, you really have to qualify for this competition. To be honest, The biggest benefit is the pride that comes with being a Champions League side. The Champions League teams are the cool kids in the playground. All of the other kids want to be them. Arsenal can qualify in two ways. One way is by winning the Europa League final. We want to win this B-grade comp so that we can go back to where we belong, kicking it with the cool kids. Sounds straightforward enough, right? Yeah, well, let's take you back to the 30th of May 2019, 5am sharp. All we have to do is win this game of football and beat Chelsea FC. 90 minutes, 120 if we go to extra time. If we win, we qualify. And if we qualify, we're back, baby. We get into the break at halftime with no goal from either side, nil all. An intense 45 minutes in which both teams are feeling each other out, neither wanting to be the first one to break, and both playing it safe. Into the second half we head though. 45 minutes of play left, let's bring this home. Chelsea break the deadlock. To add salt to the wound, it's our old striker that we sold to them not too long ago. All good, it's one goal, we can still get the win. Chelsea have scored a second time, and to make it that much worse, we've given away a penalty. This could be 3-0. Oh wow, we've scored. 3-1. With 20 minutes left, we need two goals. That's a goal every 10 minutes. We can do this. I remember sitting and staring at the screen in silence after that final whistle. Despite already knowing that the game was lost, that final whistle still managed to twist the dagger in the wound another 180 degrees. So there we have it, we've missed both opportunities to qualify and we have to wait another year before we get another chance. So why do I stick around? Well, there are such things as sporting miracles. Stephen Bradbury, the 2002 Olympics, 1000m speed skating final. It's almost an Aussie rite of passage to be told this story as a young kid. You cannot ever give up before the end. Steven was in last place, way behind the pack. The whole of Australia was still screaming and shouting at their TV with adrenaline in their veins, full of belief that it wasn't over just yet. Lo and behold, all of the competitors in front of him collided and fell over, allowing Steve to head on through and claim the gold medal. Sure, there was a bit of luck involved here, but Steve could have given up. He could have taken his foot off the throttle and cruised to cross the line, but he didn't. Instead, he skated as fast as he could, even when he was coming last. I think it's really all about the hope and belief. When Arsenal were 3 1 down with 20 minutes to go in a game that we had been totally dominated in, I still had hope. I completely believed that there was a possibility that we could win. Stephen Bradbury, whilst coming last, still had hope and complete belief that if he kept going, there was still the possibility he could finish the race with a positive result. Hope, combined with sheer desire, means that nothing is off the cards and there's always a chance to be victorious. Football fanaticism is an overwhelming force. The love of your club runs so deep, it's soul-binding. As extreme as that sounds, once you have your club, if you truly support it, that love never dies and it's with you till the end. Why? Why do we get up at 5am to watch our hopes and dreams slip through our fingers over and over again? It's simple, one day we'll win. We'll achieve what we set out to do and we'll lift the trophy, standing tall as the best, the number one. That's why we do it. It's the hope and the belief that one day we will taste that win and it will have all been worth it. At least that's what we tell ourselves.
0: That story was produced by Luke Fennick. The one and only Alison Chan was the supervising producer. All The Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories, and pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. All The Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land, in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonwurrung lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Angela Moran are our social media producers. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Maddie McQueen.